delay, you know, we don't cheat too much here. So if anybody wants to do this, this is easy. All you have to do is read. So anyway, at the top of this teach sheet, and where it says prayer of illumination, this is what we should be praying for. We pray for the Holy Spirit to open our hearts and minds and to illuminate the pages of the scriptures for us. Let us pray. <clears throat> Lord Christ, we believe in you. Help our unbelief. Amen. So today's scripture resources are, the first one is uh, the gospel reading, Luke 24, 44 to 53. Let us pray and listen. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, and that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and I behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. The epistle reading is from Romans 8, 1-17. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live in according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set that mind in, on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in the facts the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus... Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to life according to the flesh. 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. Amen. Our Hebrew scripture reading this morning comes from Exodus chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. This is the word of God for the people of God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Today, we acknowledge the ascension, the day that Jesus went back up to heaven after hanging out a little bit here on earth after Easter, and it is a crazy story. The Gospels are at a loss as to how to handle it. Luke just basically says, Jesus went back to heaven, and they were pretty flabbergasted. He has no idea what else to say about it. It's a fantastic example of how God really loves a crazy story with a twist at the end. I've been asked today to share about the journey that has led me to this time and place. Standing before you all on this Sunday, when you are faced with a choice about the future of this church, the partnership between St. Andrews and Emsworth churches, and your choice of leadership moving forward into that future and that partnership. And when I reflect on that journey, the first thing that comes to my mind is how utterly ludicrous it is that I'm standing before you here today. <laughs> This, my friends, is a crazy story with a twist at the end. I grew up in the church. Church has always been an extension of home for me, for better or for worse. My dad was a Presbyterian minister for many years, and my best friend growing up, even after we moved out to Kansas when I was six, was the son of the organist from Dormont Church, where my dad had served for a few years. I used to chase him around and tell him I'd marry him someday. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> when I was eight years old, some missionaries came to our church to do a presentation, much like the one that several of us did on Wednesday evening about our Rwanda trip. The other kids had all wandered off to pilfer cookies or climb onto the church roof, but I was a weird little kid, and so I was riveted. At some point during that presentation, I clearly heard God say, you're going to do that someday. 
Until that night, I'd wanted to be a dump truck driver, but sometimes God just sends us in directions we didn't expect. (laughs) Throughout the years growing up, I bounced between remembering what God had said so clearly to me that night when the missionaries were at our church and between wanting to be a veterinarian or an aerospace engineer or a Broadway star. But I liked leading Bible studies at youth group. I liked leading worship at summer camp with my trusty guitar. But the older I got, the more distant that voice got. I was 16, the first time I really felt the world crash down around me. We'd been in Kansas for about 10 years, most of my childhood. My parents sat my sister and I down one day and simply told us we're getting a divorce. We weren't given a reason, just a timeline. In two weeks, we would be leaving everything my sister and I knew and moving back to the motherland, back to Pittsburgh. Those two weeks were full of patronizing pity stares from everyone in town, or at least it felt like everyone in town, and whispers behind our backs. Our parents immediately stopped going to church, but I decided to keep going to youth group because I'd grown up with the kids in that youth group. They were like siblings and I only had two weeks left with them. But the first time at youth group, after my parents' announcement, one of my friends said to me, I can't believe it. I never would have thought your dad is gay. It was then that I understood the stares and the whispers and why neither of my parents would ever step foot in that church again. In 1995, not even the PCUSA was very kind to the LGBTQ community. No church was. And suddenly the church, not just our local church, but the whole church, all churches, that had nurtured me my whole life, saw my father as a dirty outcast, and my mom and my sister and I as some sort of weird, sad, broken, collateral damage. That was when I decided church wasn't worth the effort. I told God to take a hike. I wasn't interested anymore. The voice I had heard when I was little was now just a whisper in the distance, and I'd had enough of whispers. My senior year in high school, having long since lost all meaningful contact with that organist son from Dormont, I started dating a guy who was the dictionary definition of bad news. He was angry and he took that anger out on everyone around him in hurtful, manipulative, and sometimes physically violent ways. But I was broken and confused. I had no confidence, no hope, No vision of anything better. So when I was 20, I married this bad news. When I was 21, I had my first daughter, and I just accepted that this was my life now. The voice I'd heard when I was eight years old was no longer even a whisper. I had put on headphones and turned up the volume and drowned it out completely. I was going to church at a little church down the street from where I was living, but that was just because my mom had guilted me into it. My daughter should grow up in church too, right? But those were the loneliest years of my life. They were worse than losing my surrogate siblings at the church I grew up in, worse than being uprooted from the only home I'd remembered. I'd lost myself, I'd lost God, and I didn't really care. I wasn't allowed to talk to my friends much anymore, but one day my best friend managed to call at just the right time, and I was able to talk to her openly for a short while. 
And I don't know what gave me the courage to tell her about the screaming, about the objects hurtling through the air, about the time he pushed me down the stairs, about the night I slept with a kitchen knife under my pillow and the bedroom door locked because I was genuinely sure he was going to try to kill me that night. But I did. I told her about all of those things. And she said just one sentence to me. If you don't leave right now, you'll never be anything more than a statistic. And God's voice rushed back to me in that moment. I could live into the calling that God gave me, a calling that offered a life of hope, or I could live the rest of my life as just another number, because if I didn't find a way out of that marriage, it would kill me. I left that night. A few days later, the church offered me another betrayal. The pastor of the church we'd been going to sat me down and told me it was a sin to leave that marriage and I was just going to have to go back and learn to be a better wife. But something was different this time. I knew that pastor was wrong. I knew what he was saying was dangerous. I knew what he was saying went against everything God said I was meant to be. I'm not saying that I think God likes divorce. What I am saying is that God won't ask us to live a life contrary to who we were meant to be. It's the sin in the world, our sin and the sin of the people around us and the collective sin of society that traps us in those unholy, uncalled lives. And sometimes getting out of lives of captivity, trapped by roles and identities created by sin, requires remembering the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. I never went back to that church. I kept packing and starting a new life. This one founded on hope and freedom. There was something freeing about admitting to myself that the church screws up. The church is full of broken, sinful people who say stupid things sometimes. Heck, the church is run by broken, sinful people who say stupid things sometimes. As I struck out on my own, just my little daughter and I, I started going to a very large church on the north side. I liked it because it was big enough for me to get lost in. I didn't want to be noticed. I didn't want to get involved because I was afraid I'd go back into putting on a good show mode. But it wasn't long before I started working there. And it was there that the voice started to get louder again. Wasn't long after that that I reconnected with that organist's son from long ago. And we only dated for a few weeks before we were engaged, and we got married just a few months after that. And as he and I both healed from past traumas and disappointments together, that voice got louder still. When I went to Guatemala on a mission trip, I was supposed to be playing with children and helping run the makeshift pharmacy we'd taken with us. But on the second or third day, a trip leader grabbed me by the arm, set me in front of I don't know how many people, and said, today, you preach. <laughs> I cannot for the life of you tell, or life of me or you, either of us, tell you what I said that day. It was probably something along the lines of, yay, Jesus, and probably not much more eloquent than that. But later on that day, someone else in the team told me, it's about time. And the volume turned up. 
One day I told one of the pastors at our church that I felt I might be called to ministry. And this was a pretty conservative denomination, so I was told that I could look into being a missionary, but I'd never be a preacher. Oh, and did I have my husband's permission to be asking about this? I did, for the record, have his support, not his permission. And he also thought it was ridiculous that they'd send me halfway around the world to God knows where before letting me be a preacher at home. Not long after hearing our church leadership suggest that I wasn't fit for pastoral ministry, we found out that I was pregnant with Levi, oh Levi, and immediately afterward launched into a year of emergency surgeries, long hospital stays for both of us, bed rest, the works, and not a single pastor from that church called or stopped by. Not one elder or deacon checked in on us. That's the trade-off, you see, when you go to a giant church. It's easy to hide when you want to be left alone, but it's also easy to get looked over when you need someone. So after having dabbled in another denomination for a few years, my husband and I returned to our Presbyterian roots. We started attending Mosaic Presbyterian just down the street from our house, and the voice kept getting louder. In spite of the church's pity and disgust for my family when I was a teenager, in spite of the church telling me divorce was worse than withstanding violent daily abuse, in spite of the church telling me I wasn't fit to lead because I'm a woman, and in spite of the church's failing to support us when we needed them most, that voice kept getting louder. I am telling you this story is ridiculous. <laughs> Eventually, I finished my bachelor's degree because in all the drama of the past decade or two, I dropped out of college not once, not twice, but three times, and I admitted that it was time to go to seminary. I wasn't going to be a pastor for the record. I was going to continue doing community development work or work with youth, and I said that much to my pastor, Salim, when we met to talk about seminary, and he told me, you know, Carissa... You really should think about entering the ordination process. I told him there was no reason to bother with that because I wasn't planning on becoming a pastor. And in a brilliant appeal to my pragmatic side, he very gently said, I know, but it's easier to drop out of the process later on than to come into it late. <laughs> so I filled out the ordination inquiry paperwork. What harm could there be? Even though I knew I wouldn't be following through with the whole process. Here's another spoiler alert. <laughs> I did not drop out of the ordination process. In seminary, you get asked about your call over and over and over ad nauseum. The admissions counselors want to hear about it. Your professors want to hear about it. The presbytery, your advisor, your classmates, your field education supervisor, your care team. Time and time again, I told this story about hearing God speak to me during that mission presentation when I was eight years old and how I ran from that call for 25 years before getting around to seminary. And now I had finally admitted that I was going to do Christian community development and nonprofit work. And time and time again, the person asking about my call would look at me strangely as if to say, wow, you are really thick, aren't you? <laughs> because you guys, I still didn't get it until halfway through seminary. But I found myself there. I found myself in seminary. 
And soon I was ordained and began serving in a church. But the commute was long, and it was part-time, and it was a temporary position. And so after a few years, I found myself looking for another call, preferably closer to home. I knew I was called to small churches. But so many small churches out there these days are giving up. They've lost their hope. They just want a pastor who will preach on Sundays, visit the nursing homes, and officiate the funerals. Nothing fancy. None of this evangelism or outreach garbage. And one thing I had learned along my journey is that a loss of hope means a loss of call, a loss of identity. Hope is how we know who we are in Christ as individuals and as communities. And I knew that hope was important. I could not be in a hopeless place that had given up because I had lived that and it sucked. Without hope, we become bitter and angry. Without hope, we find ourselves sleeping with knives under our pillows and wondering how we wound up so scared and alone. Without hope, we forget who we are and what God has called us to. Without hope, we are trapped into thinking we're someone we aren't. Without hope, we fail to offer grace to those around us who are just sinful, broken people who sometimes say stupid things, just like we are. Without hope, we just give up and accept the crappy life we've been dealt. I will not lie. I was skeptical at first when I saw the listing for this temporary position here at two little churches. <laughs> but it was full time and it was close to home, so what the heck? <laughs> went ahead and sent in my information. And when I went in for the interview, I did not see the tired, fed up, angry hopelessness that is often apparent in small churches, small congregations. I saw uncertainty, yes. I recognized past traumas in the life of the community, but there was hope there. The message was loud and clear. This is weird and different, and we want to try it because we want more than just a pastor to live out the last years of this church with. And y'all know how much I love weird and different. So that was just the icing on the cake, friends. In the two years, four months, and two days since I joined this motley crew, not that I'm counting, this plucky band of hopeful Christians, these two congregations all rolled up into one happy partnership, something super fun has happened. It's working. Both congregations have experienced growth in new life. New friendships are being formed. And both congregations are slowly but surely developing new, stronger senses of identity and of God's call for our involvement in the communities surrounding us. Two years is not a very long time, but it's also long enough to learn a lot. Think about the difference between a newborn baby and a two-year-old. And it's long enough to know that this can be a long-term creative solution to bring hope and new life to this congregation and to our brothers and sisters at St. Andrews. So it's with hope and excitement for the future that I stand up here today, as ludicrous as it seems for my journey to have led me to church at all, let alone a pulpit, any pulpit. I often say it's ridiculous that I even still go to church, let alone that I'm expected to lead a church, or crazier yet too, but God is ridiculous sometimes. And the God of hope works in ludicrous ways. And I love that God has landed me in these two churches that are willing to embrace God's ridiculousness and follow along hopefully in God's work, even when it seems ludicrous or impossible. I cannot wait to see what God has in store next, my dear ones. Amen.